writing. Continue. Okay. Probably need to uh, catch the end of that again. <laughs> yeah, we might have to do uh, something like that again. <laughs> Sorry about that. No worries. <clears throat> do you want to introduce yourself again? Oh, the whole thing. Yeah, we'll just uh, we'll, we'll skip over some of the other stuff and circle back around as we have to. So I'm Rob Carlson. I'm the managing director of an investment firm called Bioeconomy Capital, and I'm a principal at a consulting firm called Biodesic, which does security, strategy, and engineering at the intersection of biology, other technologies, and economics. Uh, so how would you define DIY biology? It's what you get up to uh, where you want to do it, I guess. You know, I, I don't really have a strong definition of it. Um, frequently, I'm not included amongst the cast of characters because I'm over-credentialed. Mm -hmm. you know, uh, I have lots of experience. I have the, all the letters after my name. Um, and so there are people who want to make DIY bio only about... Um, only about civilians, if you will, right? It's people who come to it later who just want to play. Maybe they come out of computer science. Maybe they come out of some other background, and they they want to um, do art. They want to have a startup. They want to, you know, do some random thing that connects what they've did previously with this new technology, this squishy technology. And so that's that's some people's definition. I'm not nearly so dogmatic about it. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's whatever you're interested in doing using. Um, biology wherever you have be, happen to be able to uh, set up shop. Mm -hmm. But you're a, a big proponent of, um, obviously, biotechnology as part of the bioeconomy, right? Uh, does DIY biology have a place in that? Absolutely. So we already depend very heavily on biotechnology in our economy. Obviously, we, we eat food, we breathe air, we drink water. These all come from biology one way or another. And that's important, and that's not adequately understood, I think. Um, in terms of economic impact, and then in terms of the, the policies we have about um, how we treat our natural resources. But beyond that, um, we're already building things out of biology. Um, so we build crops, we build drugs, we build um, chemicals using biological systems, and those are a big part of our economy. Uh, and uh, the way we get new stuff in the rest of our economy, the way we got airplanes, the way we got chips, the way we got cars, is from garages. Um, there's a long list of technologies, basically everything that's important in our economy, compiled by the Small Business Administration. And everything on that list went through a garage uh, at some point in its development cycle. It doesn't mean that the company you buy it from today is still in a garage, or even that that company went through a garage. But the technology uh, went to a garage at some point in its development cycle, where garage means you know, a small number of people in kind of rudimentary setting, not IBM Labs or Intel or Microsoft or Apple, but some guys um, or girls uh, in a, um, say that over again, some men or women in a shop somewhere trying to get something to work. Um, and, uh, and that's how we have the economy we have today. And there's no reason to think that biology is going to be any different. And so, uh, and in fact, I think it's, uh, there's a very strong case that we're only going to get where we need to be with respect to food productivity or um, replacing petroleum in our economy. If we have a lot more garage biology, a lot more people with a lot more skills, trying a lot more stuff, uh, and that means more access to biology, more DIY biology, just to learn and be educated. So then would you say that this, this component of a, like a DIY stage of the technology is, is critical to that technology becoming part of an economy or a society? Uh, absolutely. Again, that's, that's where we got our phones. That's where we have airplanes. You know, when... Um, 
when the Wright brothers and Octave Chanute and all the other characters uh, were trying to figure out what it meant to fly, um, they didn't know, right? They had to invent it from scratch. They weren't rediscovering how humans could fly. They weren't um, ordering, you know, a kit, airplane. They had to learn everything from scratch. Uh, and that's frequently the kind of context where new stuff happens, where that, where that fundamental learning takes place. Um, and it's clearly still early in biology. You can't say that uh, you can do a lot of things very easily in the garage and make a lot of progress. But my experience is that you can get things done. You can innovate in the garage in a, you know, using relatively sophisticated tools. It's just going to be a while. It's going to take some time uh, for people to explore what you can do and how far you can go in that setting. Um, but the question really is, you know, can we, can we rely only on big organizations, on universities, on big companies, on big governments to innovate? Uh, and the history of every other technology is no. That, that isn't enough. We need people in all kinds of settings learning how to do new things. And so I think that's going to be true for biology as well. So in your book, um, Biology is Technology, you, you touch on this where um, you're talking about the, the similar example of, of, um, of plane technology. But you also, you also highlight that there's certain limitations to, to biology, right? For example, things are inherently more variable. Um, in biological systems, do you think, what sort of barrier do you think that imposes on DIY biology, especially as, as we think about um, machines getting more complex or biological machines getting more complex and that variability gets amplified? Is there a natural limit for what can be done in a garage? I think we don't know yet what can be done in a garage and what can't be done in a garage. And I think that's true because we don't know yet what can be done in a high-tech university setting and what can't be done. Um, I, I'm not sure I agree that uh, biology is inherently more variable. Um, I think that we don't understand it very well, and we certainly don't measure it very well. So if you look out now at the, this so-called reproducibility crisis, where lots of papers are not, uh, lots of academic papers, lots of results are hard to reproduce, um, I think that's largely because um, we're not very careful about how we measure things in biology. And this, at a fundamental level, goes back to the question of uh, how reproducible is biology itself. And it's frequently said that it's too squishy and it's hard to engineer and it doesn't work like that. Um, that is, we can't take the pieces and combine them in um, predictable ways and get predictable results. But when I look at the natural world that I see out the window, you know, we have trees that are the same for centuries on end. We have humans that are relatively similar. We have uh, cells, bacterial cells, that are actually quite similar in their composition and their behavior over long periods of time. And uh, if you think about it in that way, um, I would have to say that biology is extremely reproducible. Uh, it's just that we are terrible at doing biology mm -hmm. to this point. We don't have the right rulers. We don't know what those error bars look like. We don't make the right measurements. So a lot of what we're going to go through, I suggest, over the coming decades is uh, a refinement of our approach to biology that is much more quantitative, uh, with small error bars, with appropriate use of statistics. And there are already lots of examples where if you go down that road, you can build systems that do have predictable behaviors and they're reproducible. Um, but if you start with the idea that uh, it's all too squishy and it's all too hard, 
and you never get to that point. You always make the you always ask the wrong question. You always make the wrong measurement, or you don't have the right uh, metrics in mind. Mm-hmm. We're going to get there, I think. Yeah. So I guess on a, on a very similar note, do you think there's like a particular technology or technique, maybe um, more quantitative measurements of, of biology that would uh, improve or accelerate the rate of growth in the DIY biofield? That's a great question. Uh, I think the answer is it's uh, first yes. <laughs> to keep it simple. And then... Um, That's that the sound that we're going to use. <laughs> yes. I think that, I think that uh, we're still going to see a lot of transitioning tools out of hiring labs into garages. So you know, whatever your favorite source of used equipment is, that will still be the source in the future, um, which means that it's going to take a while for the new high-end quantitative tools to make the transition into the garage. But what I hope is that when people understand the utility of that approach, that the garage will become the source of the technology, like it has in other areas. Um, and so certainly that's what I was trying to do in, uh, in my garage, was build a highly quantitative tool for proteomics to measure many proteins in parallel. Um, but what I stumbled across uh, in that case, the technology works, but um, most of the people who do biology didn't know they needed that tool. So, you know, classic startup failure on my part there. I had a technology that was super cool, but it wasn't, it couldn't be a successful company because nobody wanted to buy it. And in fact, um, we've just come across a company that's kind of reinvented uh, that same approach, uh, slightly different set of molecules, but the basic measurement is the same. Uh, And they assert that there's a huge market for this. And I agree, there ought to be a huge market for this, which is different than people in labs knowing that they want to make that high precision measurement and they want to do, you know, a thousand proteins at the same time, a thousand different species at the same time with 1% error bars. Right? And almost nobody thinks that's an important problem, in my experience. I think it's a crucially important problem, but that's why, you know, I let that company go the first time around. And that's why we didn't invest in this company this last time around, is that I just don't think the demand is there yet. So really, the question is not about um, the important technologies. I think there are many different kinds of rulers one could invent, either in a university lab or in a garage. Uh, the bigger question is, who's going to use it, and how are they going to use it? Do they know that it's important? Mm-hmm. Um, and so then, I guess, bring that back a little bit to a bigger concern, I'm I think the increasing push to build things out of biology, to require that those biological systems are reproducible, they do behave as you, you think they should, um, is a different kind of different kind of demand than we've had previously. So if we wanted to measure things carefully before, it was because maybe there was a paper you wanted to publish, or maybe there was a, an act, um, a clinical application, um, but there wasn't the demand to have an iPhone with a bajillion different parts that all work in synchrony to accomplish a particular result. There wasn't the demand of an airplane um, that had to be reproducible, it had to be predictable its behavior, or else it wouldn't work as an object in the economy. So we've not had that same scale of demand in biology, but it's coming now, which means that we have to get better at the engineering, I think, much faster. We have to be able to um, build objects that work in a particular way. And that, in turn, creates a demand for those uh, measurement tools and techniques. Mm-hmm. 
But I think it's still going to be a little while before they're widespread. Mm-hmm. That's what I was going to ask. How far away do you think we are from that point? Comes back to people, right? Mm-hmm. So who is going to use those tools? Who is going to um, who's going to know the difference between a good ruler and a bad ruler? Uh, and um, I think that comes back to different um, different demands. Different uh, boy, I messed that up. It comes back to different desires on the part of. Uh, the people who are in charge, whether they're uh, the leaders of companies or they're professors, or in effect, I think that our educational thinking about biology has to change mm-hmm. to demand that uh, we make those quantitative measurements and we build quantitative models and we understand how all the parts fit together in a predictable way, which is has not been the demand up until this point. Mm-hmm. So it has to come from the top down, in a sense? Um, <clears throat> I don't think it does. I think that the world often changes that way. And so there's some fraction of the world that, uh, um, so somebody very famous said, uh, you know, the world progresses one funeral at a time. Um, and that's going to be important here, right? There's a lot of, there are many resources that are, uh, messed that up again. Um, there are significant resources that are controlled by people who, are a particular professional or career standing, mm-hmm. and they don't want to see those spent in a way that they don't understand. Um, so that's one kind of slow change that does require, you know, a retirement or a funeral or whatever, you, however you want to say that. Um, but then, as the costs come down, as people can begin to innovate more effectively in garages, then we'll see a groundswell. Um, and because there's now the economic pull, which there didn't used to be. That means that if you can make a thing work, you can go sell it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so my hope is that the connection between the economy, the demand for new kinds of objects that behave better, that are understandable, um, will more directly drive that kind of innovation, the quantitative innovation, the engineering. And that can happen in relatively unsophisticated settings, particularly if you focus on products that are not that expensive to develop. So mm-hmm. here's where the difference between a drug and a crop and industrial product becomes critically important. Um, if you're developing a drug, then that's roughly a billion dollars, give or take some amount. You know, people keep arguing about how much that is, but it has to be tested, it has to be safe, it has to be efficacious in using, uh, used in humans in a very complex setting. Similarly with a crop, you know, the testing isn't quite as uh, robust or isn't quite as involved, I guess I should say, um, and it isn't quite as expensive. It's still a few hundred million dollars minimally, to develop a new crop. Um, But on the industrial side, if you can make a molecule that's useful, uh, particularly if it's one that just replaces something we get from petroleum or from synthetic chemistry, then you can just sell it. And the development costs look to be substantially lower. Um, And where we're going to get eventually is that the production for that sort of system looks like beer or cows or, you know, we know how biology works at scale. We know how to do it small, we know how to do it big. Um, at the moment, connecting big demand in the economy to those biological processes runs through fairly large-scale production, which is expensive. But um, it's quite clear that biology can do things on a much smaller scale. So part of our learning is how we connect small-scale innovation to small-scale production in a more distributed environment, distributed biological manufacturing. Um, and uh, you can see it coming, right? Again, beer works that way, cows work that way, farming works that way. 
Um, and we can use all those resources to make other kinds of things too. So I, I do see that emerging. I also see that it's going to not necessarily be fast. Mm -hmm. So there's the scale-up process, and connected to that, the reproduci reproducibility um, process. What other barriers to entry into the economy do you think DIY biology labs have? So I'm going from some, tinkering from something into your garage into something that's an, like an integral part of the biotechnology economy. What's, what does that process look like? There's a lot of steps that go in between. So let's stay away from you know drugs or crops again because the regulatory barriers and the scale of those um, of those activities is quite enormous. It's quite expensive, uh, and stick to industrial products or something that you might imagine um, m making in a something that looks like a microbrewery instead of something that looks like an oil refinery. Um, then you still have the the manufacturing problem of can you make enough stuff to make money? Can you make enough stuff to, to survive economically? And based on microbrewing, the answer is yes, um, which is not to say that anybody has really connected those two things together. So how do we go from, as you say, the tinkering scale to the I can sell enough of this to get by scale? There's a problem that has yet to be solved. How do we really make microbrewing work as a manufacturing platform for more than just beer? Um, and I think the answer is uh, we need some amount of automation that's affordable for people in garages. And there are the beginnings of, of lab robots that might fill that niche eventually that help you um, do things in a more high-throughput manner, that uh, help you with uh, repetitive tasks, that can make the um, same thing happen with small error bars, with small errors in general, uh, over and over again. So that's an important piece of it. Um, and then there's some amount of software that has to get built that allows you to um, connect what you, your idea to the thing you want to make. And here, I would just go back to analogies, as usual, with other kinds of industries. So um, if you're going to make a phone, if you're going to make a part for a car, if you're going to make an airplane, a part for an airplane, um, there are engineering tools uh, at the software level, at the hardware level, they're all integrated and they all connect a person with an idea to a manufacturing platform of some kind. We don't have any of that for biology at the moment. Um, and the nice thing about that is because we know that it exists in other areas and we can borrow some of that infrastructure that's already come down substantially in cost. Uh, obviously, you know, if someone was going to go make a 777 from scratch, 787, whatever, they'd have to spend a huge amount of money building out all the infrastructure, building out all the machine tools, all that stuff. Uh, similarly, if you had to imagine building out all the infrastructure for biological engineering from scratch, it might be prohibitively expensive. But we can borrow robots, we can borrow um, software platforms, we can borrow e-commerce platforms. All that stuff is applicable to biology. It's just a matter of packaging it up and making it useful. And I can see that happening too. So on the investment side, we definitely are putting money into companies that enable those kinds of platforms. And of course, the customers for those platforms first are in big companies because they have problems they have to solve and they have money to spend, so that's where you go. But when the tools get built and become um, usable in the sense that there's a user interface that's fairly easy to, to navigate, uh, and you can sit down in your garage and design a thing, maybe do some experiments there, connect that to uh, a manufacturing platform that could be in your garage or it could be elsewhere, it could be contract manufacturing. 
then we're going to open up an entirely new channel for innovation in biology. And I can see the pieces coming together, but uh, they're going to, you know, again, it's going to take some time. It's not like we got from the Wright brothers to even uh, the P-51 or the P-29 overnight. That took decades. It took a huge amount of investment. Lots of things had to come together. Um, I think we'll be faster than that here, um, but it won't be overnight. Mm -hmm. So another big barrier to um, biotechnology or a big topic in the biotechnology world is obviously intellectual property. Um, and uh, connected to that, uh, the role of, of patents and how that either helps or hinders um, DIY biology and biohacking. Uh, would you say it, it pushes the field one way or the other in terms of, of aiding its growth or inhibiting its growth? And is there some regulation or some sort of policy that you'd like to see that would be more beneficial to growing the DIY bio economy? Uh, patents. <laughs> I have a complicated relationship with patents, mm -hmm. so I, I get the need for patents. Um, clearly, people who innovate need a way to protect the fruits of their work. Um, that has proven to be an extremely useful way to incentivize innovation and to help companies grow. Um, the problem, of course, is that as they are used now, they tend to be more a tool of suppressing innovation or containing innovation rather than supporting innovation. So big companies can afford to file lots of patents. Individuals find it hard to file a patent. It's expensive. Um, and in my experience, uh, the, the patent office is not necessarily so interested in truly new things always. Um, it's a very, it can be very difficult to explain a new thing to the patent office uh, in a way that they get. So um, the current structure creates you know, a thicket of ideas uh, that's sometimes difficult to navigate through. If the person in the patent office doesn't understand why what you're doing is different than what might be, what sounds like it might be uh, already out there in some other patent, then you can have trouble with that innovation. Um, but even once you get a patent, then you're stuck with how do you commercialize it. Um, and really, in my experience, all a patent does is buy you the opportunity to get sued. Um, for a big company, what it does is buy the opportunity to sue somebody else mm -hmm. because you have a piece of paper that says you invented it first, even if the standards for demonstrating invention are much laxer than they used to be, right? You used to have to send in a prototype, and a functional object, and now it's just some paper, and maybe you built it and maybe you didn't, or maybe you just described an idea to the point where you could convince the patent office that it worked, and that creates... You know, the illusion of intellectual property, the illusion of actual content that enables you to sue somebody else. Um, what I'd like to see is a low-cost means of protecting an idea that looked more like a copyright. Uh, and I spent a fair amount of time you know, trying to describe that in the book. Um, the software, again, is a good example of that. You can patent software. You could patent software. People don't do that as much these days. But you do have copyright, and copyright is instantaneous when you create a thing. So copyright is not protecting a performance, if you will. Um, a performance could be code, it could be a book, a written page, it could be a, um, a recorded performance, it could be sheet music, so all that stuff can be copyrighted. And copyright is low cost, uh, and as I said, instantaneous in uh, the United States right now. So as soon as you do something uh, that can be copyrighted, it is implicitly copyrighted already. Um, 
the patent office has made very clear they don't think biology is the subject of copyright, and given the way the law is written, I would tend to agree. So we need some sort of change in the, the description of what can be copyrighted and what can be patented in U.S. law in order to start that change, uh, which means that Congress has to actually be you know, effective at doing something, which is a barrier. Um, and then it has to be the right thing. And uh, even after all this time, I don't know what the right thing is. Um, it's very complicated. We don't want to create a copyright thicket in some way, accidentally, as we now have patent thickets. Right? You want to be able to say, here's this thing I designed and built, and it works. And that helps me, by, by generating revenue, that helps me do it again and again and again. That's how our economy moves forward. Um, you know, Boeing had no patents on airplanes, if, uh, or the Wright brothers originally even didn't have a patent on an airplane, then, um, then would they have continued on? And so that's an interesting story, right? The original story they told about patents was it wasn't about commercialization. They didn't believe airplanes would ever be commercially interesting. They just saw it as a way to get credit mm -hmm. uh, for having invented something. But very soon thereafter, of course, became a commercial question, and they were in the courts for decades, um, or at least up until World War I, um, trying to protect their patent rights, protect their commercial interest. Uh, and then the government had to come in and uh, basically declare that everybody had to share in those aviation patents so that we could make some progress, because the government needed airplanes that worked at that mm -hmm. point in time. So one solution to this problem is that the U.S. government could say, all right, all you people with biotech patents, you need to behave better. We need to come up with a solution, um, or else uh, we're not going to get anywhere. You know, we need new vaccines, we need new drugs, we need, um, we need uh, agricultural options that allow us to use less fertilizer and less pesticide and less herbicide. All these problems we have to solve. Um, we need some way to incentivize people. Uh, and right now... I'm not sure the current patent structure is it. Um, mm -hmm. So can the government fix it? Yes, by definition, the government fi can fix it because the government created the problem. Um, will they fix it? I don't know. Right? It may be that we also have to come up with a way to opt out of the patent system, mm -hmm. like uh, has been done with um, open source software. So open source software is an incredibly brilliant hack on copyright law to embed the um, the... Open source software is an incredibly brilliant hack on copyright law that embeds the uh, impetus to share that software in the software itself. So if you can read the software, if a machine can read the software, then you've agreed to the license that says you will share this software and any improvements you make on it. Um, and we don't have any mechanism to do anything like that with biology at the moment. Um, there are lots of people that don't like open source software. Bill Gates, for example, has famously railed against open source software. Mm -hmm. But when I've heard him rail against it, uh, I've not heard him also demonstrate an understanding of what it is or um, how the licenses work. Uh, it's more the idea that somehow offends him. Um, and so that's one of the barriers we have to go over as well with uh, biology and thinking about patents or alternative mechanisms of uh, protecting ideas or guaranteeing um, payments is that there may be something that sounds strange, that sounds like it doesn't fit with the world we live in, but is necessary to explore and try. Um, and that's just part of trying to make progress in the world, I guess. Mm -hmm. Do you think that open source uh, software, open source movement in general, is something that's it's, it's going to be a persistent movement? Do you think it's going to, to grow? Or is it 
in such competition with industrial companies or academia that it's it's kind of stymied by that. Well, that economic numbers are that open source software is critical to the existing um, market structure. That open source software has saved a lot of time and money and person hours in development. Uh, that sharing is something that makes a lot of sense to some level. Um, so I think that it's not going away in software. You can see it also creeping over into hardware because to the extent that a piece of hardware can be described by software that runs a machine to build that hardware, uh, then the hardware can also be open sourced, right? That if there's a 3D printer or a five axis mill or something that can run on code, that code can be protected by open source, by a, a license, by an open source license um, of some kind. There are many different kinds, of course. Which means that the object that the machine makes can also be protected and shared in that way. And so you can see the beginnings of, of commerce around that kind of idea. Um, and it seems like it's going to work. Um, can we? create the same description of biology. The, can, we, can we create a description of biology that allows the same kind of encoding uh, for a machine, let's say, to make something and then have the thing that it makes be protected? And the answer is yes. So right, if you can make, if a robot can do something in biology that produces a, an object that's commercializable, so you could have a robotic system not just conceivably, but again, there are examples of this. You have a robotic system build a plasmid, and then the plasmid is um, uh, sits in some bacteria that's grown under certain conditions, and all of these things are specified in software, the conditions um, to make the plasmid, the conditions to uh, have the bacterium produce something from that plasmid, so the, all the fermenters or whatnot that run that, the purification protocols can also be described in software. So all that stuff can, in principle, be shared in an open source way or come with some sort of license that specifies how it's shared or not. Um, and so I think we're going to get there, but we'll get there not maybe because we completely upended the structure of intellectual property, of patents, etc., but because like open source software and the beginnings of open source hardware, we exploited this structure that was intended for something else but made it work for biological systems. Mm -hmm. um, again, I don't expect that to happen overnight, but when it starts to work, it's the kind of thing, because it's built on software, and you know, reproducing software and moving it around is basically free, um, that that will enable a different kind of commerce, a different kind of um, contract to be written for biological systems based on the software that's used to specify how those things work. And I guess you'd call that a hypothesis, but I can already see pieces of it coming true. And my hope is that um, as a result of that working out, we can move a lot faster in developing things that I think the world needs. Mm -hmm. So switching gears a little bit, uh, can you give a brief description of what Biodesic is and, and sort of what, what the goal of the company is? Uh, yeah, so at this point, Biodesic is a, um, it's really a consulting firm that's myself and my partner, Rick Wavering, and uh, we, to be honest, we've been trying to put it to bed uh, and focus on the investment fund, but, but I mean, it, it refuses to go quietly into the night because interesting projects keep showing up, and we have a bit of a reputation now, both on the hardware side and the 
we have a reputation on the, on the hardware side, the wetware side, the software side, um, and sort of a strategic consultants. And um, given the amount of time I've been now invested in those kinds of projects, I really want to see them come to something. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, when Microsoft showed up to, uh, to talk about uh, DNA storage, information storage in double-stranded DNA, uh, reading and writing it uh, as, a, as a replacement for disk drives or tape, then uh, I had to put it somewhere. So BandEasy is where that sits for me. It's just a, it's an umbrella for Rick and I to keep doing stuff in the world and keep learning, um, which turns out to be a smart thing for us because what we're really trying to do is spend more time uh, on the investments and working with startups to build um, infrastructure and build engineering tools and then eventually build products. Uh, and we're constantly learning what the state of the art is and constantly then applying those tools on the other side of our business to see how they work and see what's needed. And you know, the, the reason that we invest the way we do is because we have struggled to solve problems and struggled to find tools. Uh, and you know, now we have the opportunity to go build those things or help build them anyway. Mm -hmm. So Biodesic is, um, you know, continues to be a, an active engineering and, and uh, consulting enterprise. Um, and probably despite any effort I have to step away from it, I won't be able to because, mm -hmm. uh, you know, when people want to know about the bioeconomy, they go look there. When people want to know about um, biosecurity, they go there. Right. So it will continue, I'm sure. It's all on the same website. That's the problem. If you want to just gotta separate them, people will stop asking you about it. <clears throat> Maybe. I don't know. Let's see. So in terms of the investments that you're doing, what sort of projects are you? do you look for? What sort of projects do you invest in? And are there any that you, you can talk about or any cool projects that... Sure. It out um, to you. you know, I, uh, as long as we're on the topic. <laughs> um, so we are focusing primarily, we're just finishing fund one. We're about to start fund two, which is probably going to look pretty similar to fund one in terms of its uh, focus. Mm -hmm. But when we started, um, the language, the story that I told about um, engineering infrastructure and reproducibility and robots was kind of vague in our minds. We knew how to, we would build a chip, right? So both Rick and myself have designed chips and we have helped build chips before. We've built software, we've built wetware. Uh, and you know, you go from the hardware and the software to uh, how do I get this molecule made? What, and why won't it behave itself? And why is it always so impure when it comes from manufacturing the tube? And so there are some kinds of tools that are available to you when you want to build a chip or a circuit or you know, a robot arm, whatever it is. Um, or you want to build software. They're just not available to anybody who wants to build something at biology. Um, and so we're focusing on that gap in tools and capability, uh, which goes from design through testing and measurement of the system to um, everything you need to make manufacturing work. And the way that we do that with chips or airplanes is there's software that sits on a laptop or a you know, maybe even a phone at this point because the phones are so powerful and they can talk to more powerful computers elsewhere. The point is that there are different kinds of software packages that allow you to um, approach different parts of the design problem and they all talk to one another. And they all know about the physical world in some way. So if you want to design a chip, it knows about um, resistances and it knows about conductances and it knows about um, dielectric constants and it knows what a resistor is, it knows what a capacitor is knows what a transistor is, it knows what a shift register is, knows what a diode is, all this 
all these layers of hierarchy that's all embedded in the software um, with parameters that reflect, reflect their behavior in the real world. So that uh, one layer of software can talk to another layer of software via an API, um, and the standards for those APIs are all understood. And then eventually the APIs can talk to manufacturing equipment, can talk to robots that make atoms jump through hoops and go where they're supposed to. And because, uh, again, with chips and airplanes and whatnot, we've worked very hard to make sure that the design tools reflect what happens in the real world to those atoms, that is how we do product development at this point in uh, most of the economy. But all those APIs, all of those details don't exist yet for biological systems, so or they didn't when we got started. And now they do. So there are uh, two companies out there that have built bits and pieces of the software, and eventually they'll talk to one another so that you can sit down at a computer. Uh, the software knows about measurement. It knows about what um, different genes do in different contexts. It knows about multifactorial optimization of these things. It uses statistics and information theory in the appropriate way. It knows about different error bars and different instruments. Uh, so in the end, it's not finished yet, but in the end, we can already see examples where uh, product development goes from 10 years to 10 weeks uh, for a biological whatnot because uh, all of this stuff actually does work. It is all reproducible. It is all predictable when you focus on you know 1% error bars, uh, when you focus on using statistics and information theory to ask questions not um, about what's necessarily the most obvious experiment to do from a person's point of view, but what would provide the most information about how to optimize a manufacturing, this incredibly complex manufacturing process inside a cell. Um, so that's synthase on the one hand that has built in this, uh, this operating system called Antha that talks to liquid handlers, it talks to cell culture systems, it'll talk to mass spec, it'll talk to, um, it'll talk to, um, spectrometers, et cetera, et cetera, so that now we can begin to connect the design side to the measurement side. It also talks to um, fermenters and talks to you know, environmental control systems so that you can begin to develop the manufacturing process that will eventually run you know, at the microbrewing scale someday when we get all these pieces working together uh, and playing nice. Um, the software will know how all that goes, and if you want to make molecule X, uh, not that we have to have all of the details figured out up front, that's something that is also important here, right? It's not that we are um, able to control all the parameters inside a cell, because we're not. Uh, we don't know how it all works yet, but we can measure enough to make it reproducible. We can measure enough to figure out which parameters are necessary uh, to crank, crank up the yield on whatever that molecule is, um, which isn't uh, also to say that it's going to work exactly the same way every single time, but so far it appears to be working with with regularity. Uh, and that 10 years to 10 weeks example is drawn from one of Synthase's clients, where this client had this project that they couldn't make work for 10 years, um, and they didn't know what to do with it. And Synthase showed up and said, oh, we can, we can do that. And of course, it sounded ridiculous and like magic, because this big company couldn't make it work, so how could this little startup make it work? Um, but they did. Um, and it's at pre-commercial stage already, uh, with only uh, really just a few weeks of effort. It's because all these different trends are now being incorporated, they're, they're coming together to enable high-precision measurement and um, high-dimensional statistical models and 
um, optimization of the manufacturing process all at the same time. Uh, and eventually, that kind of package, because it's software, will be available to whomever wants to use it. At the moment, it's big companies. Eventually, if you want to do a thing in your garage and you have uh, access to enough of those tools, enough of the hardware, which could also be a problem, but over time, that will get solved too, then you can go ahead and do that. Um, then who's going to manufacture it? And how is the manufacturing process going to be handled? Well, that's a whole other set of problems. Um, and if you look at the way some early synthetic biology companies have stumbled, it's because they didn't have the tools in place, the quality systems in place to handle optimizing their manufacturing processes or even keeping track of their manufacturing processes very well. So we invested in Riffin, uh, which was founded by Tim Gardner, who helped solve some of those problems when he was at Amaris. Um, but his experience, both at Amaris and in the automotive, automotive industry, where he was before, was that those were very bespoke tools tailored to the specific organization, the specific kinds of problems people were working on. And what he saw was that these were actually all the same problem. It was a very generalizable set of uh, questions and tasks. Uh, so he built Riffin to handle all these different kinds of things. And now they're out, the product, and um, making good progress in process development and quality system management. Um, and it's coming along very nicely. Again, it's early days. At some point, Antha from Synthase is going to talk to Riffin, and we'll have this soup-to-nuts uh, software system that can go from, I want to make molecule X, to here's how you manage a manufacturing system for molecule X at whatever scale makes sense. Going to be a while, but I can slowly see those pieces coming together. Mm -hmm. um, and then we've done things like uh, we invested in Zymergen, which is a, a company that has taken a different tack on some of these problems. They do mostly high-throughput screening. They have models that they use, but they're really more about um, data and using that data very cleverly in, um, in a massively um, high-throughput way to find solutions inside cells to make stuff. So they optimize products for other people at this point in time, and eventually they'll apply that to, uh, to manufacturing their own products. And then on the manufacturing, the, even more uh, on the manufacturing side, we invested in a company called Rooster Bio, which um, initially I thought was, I didn't, I didn't get it at all. So the guy who founded it read my book and called me up and said, oh, exponential this and exponential that and cell therapies and stem cells. And I went, I have no idea what you're talking about. Um, but uh, he kept after me. And eventually I realized that um, when it comes to thinking about 3D printing of cells or growing of organs or um, anything that uses that material, we're really just talking about the same kind of problem that um, we've already seen in printing, mm -hmm. whether it's you know on paper or in three dimensions. And that is that the, the cost of the thing you're printing, the quality of the thing you're printing, is the most important part of the problem. So if, if uh, you're printing on paper, right? paper is easy to come by, printers are easy to come by, the hard part of printing, turns out, is the ink. Uh, High-quality, reproducible ink that behaves the same way every time and is packaged up in a way that's easy to use. Uh, so, you know, send that now to 3D printing. You want to 3D print uh, whatever, you know, 3D print a piece of an engine or 3D print a piece of uh, um, uh, laboratory equipment, whatever it is, the material you're making it out of actually determines the economics of the thing. So if you want to imagine printing a kidney or printing a liver, even though we don't know how to do that yet, get pretty close, but we don't know really how to do it yet. Um, the hypothesis was that the printers are going to be commodity, they're going to be everywhere, and that turns out to have been right. Uh, 
as we were making this decision, we kept getting pitches from 3D tissue printing companies. Um, and it didn't seem like that was the kind of business to invest in. But um, we weren't getting pitches from a lot of ink companies where the ink would be cells, uh, where the media used to grow cells in a very high quality way. So that's what Rooster does. They, uh, I guess the, another thing to say about that is if you did imagine you wanted to print a liver or a kidney at this point, that's about $10 million worth of cells, which clearly doesn't scale very well, right? It needs right. to be $1,000 or yeah. thereabouts uh, if you really want a replacement organ. Um, and so Rooster has already cut uh, an order of magnitude and in some other products, two orders of magnitude now off the cost because they're really just focused on quality manufacturing of that ink. Uh, they have a few more many, or orders of magnitude to go before they're clinically relevant, but they've already completely transformed the way research happens. And their startups that exist only because they have access to rooster cells. They've made it affordable in a way to do experiments that was totally prohibitive before. And where I'm trying to go with all this is we know how to build stuff in other parts of our economy, right? We know how to build, again, I keep coming back to this, we know how to build phones, we know how to build cars, we know how to build airplanes. Um, and I find understanding those industries to be extremely instructive in thinking about what we need to accomplish to really be able to build out the bioeconomy, whether it's, you know, the printed organ that we don't quite have yet, or whether it's replacing a molecule of, um, from petroleum, which we absolutely know how to do, uh, and we're in the process of scaling up. So um, all of those things are, are based on learning from engineering processes that have been going through more than a century of development, you can bring all of that knowledge and all that experience to bear on biology. And when you do that, it all works like you think it should. Um, it's not nearly as hard to predict the behavior of biological systems if you're really careful about your measurement, if you're really careful about how you describe them and how you implement your engineering designs. So how do we invest in the human element? How do we get more people interested in DIY bio, especially, for example, people that have backgrounds in, in these other technologies that might be able to bring some of that expertise into biology? Community labs are a great way as an intermediary to facilitate access to stuff. Um, I really like the couple of examples now, I, which I you know, had hoped would happen. I was imagining that uh, libraries would become a source of learning, of applied learning, not just book learning. Uh, and then we saw initially um, fab labs, you know, maker spaces based on 3D printers and vinyl cutters and whatnot rolling out in labs. And now there are two examples of uh, libraries that have bio labs in them, in addition to the community labs that are out there. And uh, this is a magical thing, I think. This you know exposes kids to simple experiments early on, um, gets them imagining what they can do. Uh, and a lot of that infrastructure is also sufficiently sophisticated. But if you want to think about starting a company, if you want to think about doing real innovation, you can walk into a space like that and get something done. Um, again, it doesn't mean that, you know, that if a company comes out of that, that it will be the company that finally commercializes it, just like it doesn't work that way in the rest of the economy. But nonetheless, we need access to that kind of infrastructure. We need the ability to learn and play um, and, uh, and try things and fail in a safe way. Um, and so that's part of it infrastructure. Um, you know, I, I have written a bunch of stuff for the U.S. government on how we facilitate innovation in biotech. Uh, and usually what I focus on is this labor problem, this skill problem, that we, 
meet more people uh, who have access to the ability to learn, the ability to try stuff, um, to be able to go to a garage, whatever form that garage actually takes, uh, and be innovative. And uh, you know, we're getting there slowly. There's still a fair amount of resistance, both the United States and internationally, to the idea that uh, people can play with biology. Now they jump to the threat always, uh, rather than jumping to the opportunity. And I think that's, um, I think that's unfortunate. And I, I do work hard on that problem too. You know, what is it about the way we discuss, well, first science in general, but then more specifically biotechnology, that leads people to the worst instead of leads people to being op optimistic about the possibilities. Um, but I think that's just a long-term a long-term story. It's going to take a lot more work. Um, you know, Frankenstein is a very popular mm -hmm. meme. Um, Frankenstein is not actually about science, obviously. Um, but it, when you read the story, it's it's even more not about science. It's We talk about it as if it were about science. We call it science fiction. In fact, mm -hmm. we call it the first science fiction. Um, but it's not. It's about magic, and it's about how people behave. And if you read Frankenstein... Um, an amazing thing happens in the book. He's going along, Frankenstein is trying, he's trying, he's trying, failing, failing, failing. And there's a period at the end of a sentence, in the middle of a paragraph, and there's a space, and then in the next sentence, it magically works. So it's that space between the sentences that actually contains it's the absence of content that is where all of our fear comes from. Uh, and maybe that's the, the amazing thing of, of that, about that story and why it works, is that it's a thing that is unspecified. It is, an, it is a thing that is not written down, not even hinted at, because, of course, it's not real. Uh, but the structure of it is such that, the structure of the writing is such that um, somehow the, that space between words, the absence of content, uh, is a foundation for all of this fear that we have today about science in general, but you know, genetic modification and biotech. And with that amazing foundation for that kind of story, um, it just takes a lot of education and a lot of time to overcome it. Mm -hmm. um, and I think we do also a bad job of explaining the role of biology in the economy. We do a bad job of explaining how dependent we are on it. So that's one reason I dove into trying to measure this and discovering that, in fact, you know, structurally, the U.S. government doesn't measure biotech. But if you go and you struggle and you find a bit of data, it turns out to be a huge part of our economy, relatively. It's bigger than mining. It's bigger than some kinds of manufacturing already. Um, but we didn't know that because we didn't measure it. And you know, an, a non-trivial number of the trips I take to D.C. now are about the role of biotech in the economy mm -hmm. because, yes... Mr. or Ms. Congressman, it's about jobs in your district. That's really what it comes down to on the Hill. Um, and when you can say it's this much of the economy and we don't actually know whether you're doing well or not here. We don't know, you know whether you're doing a uh, member of Congress what you can for the people in your district. Um, and they start to get a little bit uncomfortable. Uh, and again, it's lots of big moving parts and it's going to take a while, but I see progress. We're going to do better at measuring it. We're going to invest more. Um, I see hope in the future, but it'll be a while before we get there. So, just for the sound bite, can you uh, 
say, I am the inventor of the Carlson curve and explain what it is. It doesn't have to be those words. Good, because I'm not going to say it. <laughs> I mean, really, the, so the Carlson curves are really just data, right? And mm -hmm. um, I, you know, the origin of those was that I was struggling more than 15 years ago now, almost 20 years ago, to uh, figure out what the world was going to look like and what I wanted to work on. And being a physicist by training and wanting to quantify things, it occurred to me that maybe I wanted to know how fast it was all changing. So I grabbed a few things that it seemed like I could measure, which turned out to be the um, cost and rate of reading and writing DNA. And in that same paper, which doesn't get as much attention, um, the rate of determining protein structures, which incorporates a huge number of skills and in some way more telling about how fast the technology is changing than just reading and writing DNA. Um, all those things were improving at least exponentially uh, when I you know, gathered the, the data that I thought I, uh, I could. Um, and then what does that mean? So they're changing exponentially. So what? Well, at the time, right, this is the late 90s, Moore's Law is much in the news. Um, and we're having this economic boom built in part on Moore's Law, which is the number of transistors per chip or the cost of computation or you know, there are different ways to phrase Moore's Law. Um, and so it was natural to compare the data on biological technologies to Moore's Law to chips and transistors. Um, and in some sense, I'm sorry I did that because uh, first it relies more heavily on Moore's Law and people's understanding of what they think Moore's Law is than what Moore's Law actually is. So we should come back to that. Um, and then it, it, I unintentionally enshrined that comparison in people's minds as being this important thing and that the exponential change was important. Um, but even in that initial paper, what I said was, there's no reason for it to be either this fast or this slow, right? It could be much faster. It's really just about demand and how fast um, we move things into the market, how fast, how much money we put into the development of these technologies. But Moore's Law is, in many people's minds, understood to be some kind of fundamental natural law or fundamental engineering law. Really, Moore's Law was a business model that Intel used to dominate the chip manufacturing business for many, many years. Um, and it took me a while to figure that out, too. And if I'd understood that to the extent I do today, and I wrote that paper, the paper would have been quite different. I'm not sure I would have made the comparison that I did. Um, but, you know, in retrospect, uh, it probably was useful. I wish that I maybe had, you know, couched it a little bit differently, or I'd known to couch it a little bit differently. But what are you going to do? Um, that was quite some time ago now. Um, and, of course... Moore's Law has basically ended, right, um, or is ending. It's not clear that we're going to go much uh, further in terms of the number of transistors per chip or their size or however you want to measure that. Um, and biology has moved much faster than Moore's Law. Um, so, you know, the, the cost of sequencing or the productivity of sequencing instruments, which is, I think, at least as important as the cost, have changed faster than uh, Moore's Law over the last almost decade now, the cost of writing DNA uh, stalled, sort of, at least as far as commercial instruments go, but now maybe picking up again because there's a little bit of incentive um, 
I'm not sure where that's going to go. It seems like that's a race to the bottom to me. I don't know how much demand there is for you know human genomes worth of synthetic DNA. We'll see. Uh, but you know, bringing it back to Microsoft then and this other project, um, we know that we're producing a lot of information, um, sharing a lot of information on the internet. We know that uh, tape and disk drives are going to be uh, not the best way to solve that problem. Um, so you know, we could use tape to accommodate exponentially more information, but that would mean exponentially more tape. It would mean exponentially more tape factories and more tape warehouses. And Sure, technically that works, but economically it's implausible. So what are we going to do instead? It turns out that we know how to read and write DNA. It's orders of magnitude more dense in terms of its information capacity than is a tape. And we also know that it lasts for you know almost a million years uh, when it's frozen in the tundra. So it's extremely stable as an information storage mechanism. Uh, information storage medium, I should say. So why not combine all those features into a technology and store our information from the internet, from sensors, and you know your term paper in DNA? Um, it actually makes a huge amount of sense. I, I didn't really appreciate uh, how powerful the idea was when I started working on this project, and now I'm absolutely convinced that it's inevitable. There's, we don't have anything else on the shelf that comes anywhere close to um, being as useful as DNA, I think, for storing information. So that's another angle, uh, another demand for these biological technologies that's really going to change the way we think about biology in our economy. Um, and, you know, it's quite early. It's not a commercial product yet. It's going to be years before it is. But um, even just getting it to a commercial product is going to change the demand for synthetic DNA and for sequencing in a way that then impacts how we use those technologies to engineer biological systems. Uh, and I think all I'm really saying is that uh, everything is changing fast and is incredibly interesting and complicated. Uh, and it's a great time to be alive. <laughs> Do you have any uh, additional questions, Zach? I want to keep you too long. Yeah. Um, I guess, what are some ways you think would be best to encourage more people to actually be interested in DIY bio? So I think the biodesign challenge is a really intriguing way to engage people. Um, I think the stories about art and you know artificial or not artificial leather, but synthetic leather, or you know biologically, um, hmm. how does modern matter describe what they're doing? It's uh, cultured leather, right? So this idea of cultured products, I like that a lot, um, and uh, not just because it's. Uh, an accurate description of the way that you make those materials, but because um, we like them to be seen as cultured, um, as opposed to uh, sort of you know hard scrabble, as it were. Um, so there's a nice marketing angle and the dual meaning of that word. Um, and so when you think about how you make stuff, would you rather it come from a giant hole in the ground and a massive petroleum refinery that's spewing? pollutants into the air and consuming huge amounts of energy. Would you rather it came from this, you know, green process that was nice and quiet and small and um, innocuous and also carbon neutral, if maybe even uh, even carbon negative? But there are different ways to go after the benefits of biology, to, to explain benefits of biology. Um, you know, when I was in graduate school, uh, I certainly didn't get much of an introduction to the way the economy works getting a doctorate in physics. Uh, and it wasn't part of my undergraduate experience in physics. 
And it wasn't until years later, when I was out working with an economics research firm, when I, you know, running around the world looking at palm oil plantations and biofuels and crops and vaccine manufacturing, that I really started to get a sense of how, where we get our stuff from um, and how we build the world around us. Um, and I also respected, as a result of that uh, work, more than I ever had before. Um, the role of the marketplace, the role of the economy in uh, driving the choices that we, that people make, or enabling them to make choices, I guess would be a better way to say that. You know, if you can choose between something that uh, a fuel for your car that comes out of a, an organism in a vat and it may like brewing beer, or you can choose something from a big hole in the ground that's polluting and you know is also being made by people who hate us. Um, right, so a lot of the the resource movement around the world um, is enmeshed with politics in a way that is damaging to uh, the national security of the United States. Uh, maybe we can think about doing something different. Maybe we can use biology as a manufacturing platform to sever the link between the resources that we need in our economy and people who hate us. Um, you know, all of that thinking developed over quite a long time when I was actually out in the real world, seeing how stuff is made and seeing how money moves around. Uh, and where I'm really going with this, you know, there are many motivations in, all of, in that story to bring people to the table. Well, I think where I'm really going with it is that um, it's clear now to me, quantitatively, that biology can outcompete many of the technologies we rely on otherwise. We can outcompete petroleum, mining, and manufacturing. We can outcompete um, manufacturing of physical objects, at least in some kind. We're not going to grow a rocket engine ever, probably, but nonetheless, we can uh, grow the components, we can grow the materials in some way, or we can uh, replace some of the, that manufacturing technology with biology. Um, and it's because it's simpler, because it's lower cost, it's simply going to win eventually. And I that's the you know final piece, I think, of how you get more people interested in, is that this works better. It's just better. And so people are going to use it. Um, you know, there'll be this day somewhere down the road where um, artists, cutting-edge artists, are doing stuff with petroleum because it's this weird material that nobody wants to use anymore. Uh, and uh, I can't wait for that. I right? can't wait until coal is an artisanal uh, medium. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I guess one more... Uh... How does the change, the switch from like centralized industrial kind of production to this more distributed bio, biology-based uh, production impact kind of the bioeconomy? Uh, well, I think that in order for many of the things that we use in our world to be made biologically, uh, we have to be able to make them in a distributed way. So here's what I mean by that. Uh, if you look at the a commodity, like a fuel, then uh, right now we get most of our fuel, obviously, from petroleum, and then a petroleum refinery has to be gigantic because it's based on thermodynamics. Um, and uh, heat loss and materials, the cost of materials, you know, surface-to-volume ratios and pipes and boilers and all that, so that all makes a huge difference. Um, it's critically important when your margin is a percent or something like that on a, on a uh, gallon of gasoline or whatever it happens to be. Uh, that you're selling. So um, to try to compete against that using biology, 
uh, is very difficult because you're immediately walking into the biggest, baddest commodity market on the planet. The technology that, let's be clear, isn't as developed as a hundred years of competitive petroleum um, economics have delivered to us. So, so don't do that, right? Don't compete in that market first. Go do something else that's easier first. And um, petroleum is not a homogenous substance, right? When it comes out of the ground, it's a mixture of many things. And that means a barrel of petroleum is a mixture of many things. And 85% of the volume of a barrel of petroleum uh, is only about 15% of the value. And that's what we burn or we, in our cars, we put on our roads. It's, um, the other 15% of the volume is about 85% of the value. And that's what we build our world out of. So that's the, you know, the finish on the wood in this room. It's paints, it's solvents, it's plastics, all that's all those atoms that we need. Um, it's already clear that we can make all of those compounds directly using biology. And we can do it uh, with technology that's much less expensive, much less capital intensive than a petroleum refinery. Um, with much higher margin, at least at the beginning, because the margin is, the costs are set by petroleum. And if you can you know, compete against petroleum at the same price, but it costs you a lot less to make it, then you're gonna do that. Um, so what I'm really going with this is that uh, making all those atoms and distributing all those atoms can be done using biological systems. And as we refine rapidly, refine our ability to design biological systems, design manufacturing processes to make all that stuff, um, you're going to find a lot more people making a lot more stuff. Uh, and that's going to make it hard for petrochemicals to make money on uh, that chunk of the barrel of oil. If you want to replace all of petroleum, um, you know, break it down into energy used for transportation and atoms used to build stuff. And we can get the energy for transportation from other places, right? We already have electric cars. We don't have enough electric cars, but we have them. We know we can make more of them. We know where we can get a lot more electricity. Um, we don't have to have petroleum to create that energy or to, to store that energy, actually. Um, but we're not so good with the atoms yet, right? So we have to have the ability to get those atoms from somewhere. And, uh, and because we can do it using biology and because m more people can engage in that activity in this distributed economy that biology enables, because it scales very differently, um, then you're going to see manufacturing become less centralized because the economics, uh, I should say that differently. So you're going to see biology, you're going to, you're going to see manufacturing become less centralized because the, um, the fundamental physics that biology relies on, you know, that, or that we rely on through biology to make stuff, is quite different than we rely on um, when we do uh, petroleum refinery or something like that. Uh, and that means that uh, I'm not saying that big companies are going to go away because we still might have big companies. I haven't figured out whether that's true or not. But whereas, you know, if you don't have oil, you don't have access to resources. You don't have access to either energy or atoms. You have to buy it from somewhere else. But you can put a beer brewery just about anywhere. And when that beer brewery can make things that are not mostly water, as is beer, especially in the United States, um, when you can make things that are worth $10 a liter or $100 a liter or $1,000 a liter, which is that high-value fraction of barrel of oil, then, uh, and you can sell it, then you can just set up shop and do that wherever you need to, right? Which means that the ability to participate in the economy in a manufacturing sense in producing those materials is also going to be very widespread. That's actually a truly transformative idea. I have no idea how it's going to turn out. Um, but 
the ability to to make a manufactured object in the same uh, with the same set of technologies that you can use to grow your food or brew your beer means that any absolutely anybody can do it, uh, and that's definitely going to change the world. Cool. Awesome. Thanks. Okay. No, good. No, I think we're good. Awesome. Is there anything else that you want to throw in there? No, you know, I just I threw the whole kitchen sink at you. Yeah, that's good. Awesome. Great. Well, we really appreciate it. Yeah, it's probably going to be a while before it's so a few weeks. Like Zach was saying, we're going to cut it up and put pieces in here and put it into like a narrative style, uh, mostly about the first episode is going to be a lot about. how DIY bio gets started, and what it is, that sort of thing. And we'll use a lot of that content, but then save some of it for later, maybe. Mm, sure. But, uh, yeah, we can, of course, run it by you first to make sure you're... Yeah, I look forward to hearing uh, what it turns out to be like. Yeah, yeah hopefully fun. relatively soon. We're, we were trying to, hoping to End launch it at the Planet conference. Yeah, because uh, yeah, I'll be going to that with Michael. Production schedule has been slowed down. So we'll see how it goes. Yeah, I think we got, we got a couple of good, good luck. Yeah, thank you very much. It's very helpful.